This is the last event of this book tour, and it's been a wild ride. Um, you know, those of you who know me know that my dad passed away right before it came out, and I would not have been able to get through this time if it wasn't for so many of you. So thank you so much. Um, I want to thank Amber, who um, helped put this together from Viva Lights. I want to thank Sonia Munshi from Research Institute, who's one of their sponsors, and Sonia actually hooked us up too with this spot. Um, I want to thank Rika, who's going to be DJing later. <laughs> I don't know if they're here yet, <laughs> but they will be DJing right after. I want to thank all the readers, Patty, Delani, I'm not going to come back up here, so I'm doing everything now. Um, Christine, Joseph, Sonia, Nadia, and I will come back at the end of it. Um, and me. I want to thank Q and Willow Books for selling books. Please support them and the writers who are signing books. This is an amazing Queens event. As you know, Christine, just all of us, so many Queens writers know, Patty, you know, we're having a Queens renaissance here. It's really beautiful. So this is a very special night. Um, and yeah, I am going to, before I get more verklempt and ask you to talk amongst yourselves, I'm gonna just say, actually don't talk amongst yourselves, listen to the readers, they're amazing. Um, I'm gonna read Patty's bio, and then each reader will read the next reader's bio. It's gonna be quick, each reader's just gonna read for like seven minutes, um, so it's gonna be fast paced, but there's gonna be so much beauty. Um, all right, so Patty's bio, uh, Patricia Park, is the author of The Queen's Multiverse, I love this, uh, the novels Read Jane, the award-winning retelling of Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre, see I don't know how to say English words, um, and the YA novel Imposter Syndrome and Other Confessions of Alejandra Kim about a Korean-Argentine-American teen from Jackson Heights. Um, her New York Times op-ed on anti-Asian hate, I Am Done Being Your Model Minority, went viral. She's assistant professor in American University's MFA program. Thank you, Patty, so much for taking time from your own book tour. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Thank you all for being here. Um, thank you for being fellow Queensites. And uh, yeah, I think also I'm, I'm just so pleased that Pusher brought us together. We were we met at this like this book fest in Vermont, Lily White Vermont, and they're like, put the two ethnic girls together. Um, and we're like, all right. But then we met and it was amazing. And she's like my queen sister. We became really great friends. Um, I'm going to read a little bit. I, I wrote a YA novel, Imposter Syndrome, and Other Confessions of Alejandra Kim. Um, I'll read a little bit from it. And, um, and then we'll go from there. When you have a name like Alejandra Kim, teachers always stare at you like you're a typo on the attendance sheet. Each school year, without fail, they look at my face and roster and back again, like they can't compute my super Korean face and my super Spanish first name. Multiply that by eight periods a day and boom, welcome to my life at Quaker Oats Prep. <laughs> I mean, Alejandra is like the Jessica of Spanish girl names. Basic is all hell, right? It's not like my parents named me Edmund Hilda or Sochil. And yet people still find a million and one ways to butcher my name. I've been called one. Ali Jandra, Mr. Landibido, our college guidance counselor, who apparently never took Spanish 101. <laughs> Two, Alexandra, Mr. Schwartz, sophomore year, who ironically Ellis Islanded me, even though he teaches US history. <laughs> Three, Alejandra, Miss Sanders, junior year of physics. Technically this is correct, the third syllable is pronounced like a Han in Hanukkah. 
Hanukkah? Hanukkah? You get my point. But Miss Sounders was trying so hard to sound muy auténtica, which was almost as bad as she just Ellis Islanded my name in the first place. You know, like those annoying people who go to the bodega and order a croissant? <laughs> when the rest of us commoners just say croissant? But if you're the one ordering croissants from a corner bodega, that's the least of your pretentious problems. For the record, I just pronounce it Alejandra. I tell people to call me Allie. I say it the easy gringo way. Alley cat. Alley way. Back alley. That's what everyone at Quaker Oats Prep calls me. Our school's not actually named Quaker Oats. It's officially Anne Austere Preparatory School, named after a Quaker from the 1600s who was literally burned at the stake for trying to better humanity. But everyone calls us Quaker Oats. We're not like Brearley or Chapin or Dalton. We're more progressive. We're like the minor leagues for the big Quaker colleges like Whiter and Swarthmore and Bryn Mawr. Laurel Greenblatt-Watkins, my first and best friend here, says we're a hotbed of granola crunchiness in the middle of Chinatown. I don't know what to think. I'm just a scholarship kid, 90%. And Ma never lets me forget about the 10% we owe each year. Back in my neighborhood in Jackson Heights, Queens, they call me Ale. Except when Ma gets super pissed, then it's all Alejandra, Veronica, Kim, andate a tu cuarto. If I were Dominican, or Puerto Rican, or Colombian, or Mexican, then at least I'd have some solidarity with mi gente, my people. Which might sound vaguely racist, but it is what it is. But my parents are Argentine, and there aren't a whole lot of us here. Both sets of my parents' parents were Korean immigrants who were aiming for America North back in the day, but washed up in America South. Sidebar, the Korean name for America is Miguk, beautiful country. For South America, it's Nammi, South of Beautiful. <laughs> Just all kinds of linguistically fucked up. It sounds random how a bunch of Koreans ended up in Argentina. The short answer is immigrant labor exploitation. They were sent over to farm and populate Patagonia. But the land was basically a barren desert. The Koreans were like, yeah, nope, and hightailed it back to Buenos Aires, where they settled in a Visha Miseria called Pecu and sewed clothes all day. Every time I get upset about something first world, like how they forgot the ketchup packet with my fries, I have to stop and remind myself, Papi grew up in literal Miseryville. He worked in a sweatshop, forced into child labor by his own parents. That's what happens when you're the kid of immigrants. Your whole life is one big guilt trip. Nothing about my family is normal. Not even the Spanish we speak, which is all weird and porteño, AKA Buen Aryan. Apparently there's a hierarchy within the Latinx community where everyone thinks Argentines are white, snobby, European wannabes who look down their noses at the rest of Latin America with their hoity-toity accents and their weirder verb conjugations and stubborn refusal to use normal words like tú, you. Instead, Argentines say vos, which was super trending in Spain in the 1500s, <laughs> but has since fallen the way of the payphone and the postage stamp. Also, Argentines use the word che, hey, a lot, which is how Ernesto Guevara got his nickname. Anyway, Ma and Papi knew each other as kids back in Pecu, and they re-met here in New York as adults, and the rest, as they say, is historia. Che, that was exhausting. What's kind of annoying is how people, adults especially, 
expect you to lead with your origin story like you're in a Marvel comic, sans the superpowers. Like, ooh, tell me the exotic story behind your name, face, race, peoples. Walk me through that radioactive spider bite that transformed you into the super freak you are today. Peter Parker, by the way, is also from Queens. I'm 94.7% sure they wouldn't do that if I looked like my ancestors had stepped off the Mayflower. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, so I'm very pleased to announce the second reader. Jai Dulani is a Pushcart-nominated multi-genre writer. Abona and Kundaman alum, his poetry has appeared in The Rumpus, Best New Poets 2020, Waxwing, No Tokens, and Elsewhere. Dulani's creative nonfiction has appeared in publications such as Alaska Quarterly Review, Sweet, Foglifter, and The Offing. Dulani is co-editor of the anthology The Revolution Starts at Home, confronting intimate violence in activist communities. His manuscript, Language We Fall Through, was a finalist in the Kelsey Street Press QT BIPOC Book Prize. I am so pleased to welcome Jai Dulani. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, thank you to everyone else organized the event, and it's such an honor to support Wishra's book, um, which is amazing. You have to read it. Yes. Um, and it's such an honor to be claimed as a Queens writer. Um, I, I used to live in Queens. Don't live in Queens anymore. Queens is deep in my heart. Deep, deep, deep in my heart. My parents live here, though. Yeah, my parents, my sisters, all my chosen family, they're all here, friends of 20 plus years. Um, yeah, I still go to Letty's and Kay now, and they're like, what's up? So, um, and, um, yeah, so thanks for having me. Um, I, wa I, I thought about what to read, and I just wanted to honor Bushra's book and this um, uh, amazing moment that um, that um, she aptly has called a renaissance and so um, I'm going to read a piece that really honors um, uh, our literary ancestors, um, our uh, feminist ancestors. Um, this piece um, is called Sul Sultana's Reverberations Haiban and it refers to uh, a 1905 feminist science fiction, science fiction story called Sultana's Dream that was written by Rokea Sakhfat uh, Hossein. Um, so, yeah, um, just thinking about this amazing lineage of, of Muslim feminist writers and teachers and, and honoring and honoring Bushra in that vein. Um, oh, and there's piece, there's, um, you can't see the italics, but things that are in italics are from that piece, um, Sultana's Dream. I mistook a patch of green grass for a velvet cushion, pressed my ear against the soil, heard our children poem through orange-purple sky. Here we remember the exhale of tiger bones, the echo of a cunning crown. We circle up tender, drenched in pink rain, peacock stargaze. Here things are not forgotten, but we do not forever live in their shadow. I mistook a patch of green grass for a velvet cushion, pressed my ear against the soil, heard our children poem through orange-purple sky. Here we trace the silhouette of my father's stutter, context abundant for every tremor. Here we teach future ancestors courage through song. You are a lucky people, ejaculated I. Home, beloved, home, queer.
this piece um, honors moms, and I really love the mom character in Bushra's book. Um, it's, it's very well, like all the elders are so well-rounded and alive, and it's such a gift um, to our immigrant community um, and our moms. So this goes out to moms, and especially any, any Cindy moms uh, that might be, might be here. Um, it's called Abundance. Twisted roots stretched out towards each other. Bharati, my mother's mother, jawed Cindy. Her daughter, refugee camp Punjabi. Matrilineal severed bark. I spoke English to my mother's Hindi. Not everything makes it upstream. We're from pre-partitioned Pakistan. Blood dripped alliteration, we background each other casual. My second generation despair, a pile of scattered lumber. Recently, I queried, how will I learn Cindy? Light this other perceiving. Ma's moss-covered smile chiseled into blue sky. The internet. Her chuckle, a lush fern fern valley. Green feathering over green. The sparrow reeled out the bushes past me. I inhaled the dirt, the solitudes, the gift. Um, and this is dedicated to DJ Rekha. I don't know if they're here yet, but I'll let them know that this is dedicated to them. Um, and uh, yeah, and also dedicated to the star of Wisher's book, uh, Razia. It's called Secret Living. Breakfast Club Remix. Off screen, off script, under the staircase in the temple basement. Frilly dress drag, playing gin, rummy, legs out, drawing cards beyond pawn life, beyond American dream trophies. In black and white, the king and queen needed us. We were front row culture war, we were dirty pink origin stories. Turquoise trimmed accent, I was nine, gay kissing Mira at temple summer camp, by the tree. Hidden plus girl plus kiss equals a bishop move. Before her, red-headed Christy Mazza broke tongue on a basement couch. Third grade practicing for a future? In our 20s, diaspora drink in hand, we danced disco Bollywood dance floors, Brooklyn rooftops. We sang the titillating words of our checkered childhood, affirmed our gay king hair, our gay queen outfits, our night dreams, confessed our shit management of our checkmate lives. I'm excited to announce our next reader, uh, Christine Candic Torres. Born and raised in Woodside and Elmhurst, Christine uh, Candy Torres is the author of the novel The Girls and Queens. Um, her pushcart, not prize nominated short fiction, has appeared in publications such as Catapult, Quelly, The Offing, and Fractured Lit. Avona and Hedbrook alone, she's also the recipient of a Queen's Council on the Arts New Work grant. The cheaper paperback edition of The Girls and Queens will be published May 2nd, 2023. Let's Thank you so much, and thank you, Bushra, for inviting me here to celebrate the um, the much acclaimed novel um, and much deserved uh, Roses is wonderful, and I hope you all buy it tonight if you don't already have it. Um, this is my novel, The Girls in Queens. I am. Thank you. 
Yeah. Um, and I'm not actually going to read something from it. I'm going to read an essay that I wrote about it. But it also is about growing up in Queens. So did anybody grow up in Queens here? This is new. I've never read this before, so uh, bear with me. It's called Consuming the Girls in Queens, A Kind of Food Tour. <laughs> As I prepare for the paperback launch of my debut novel, The Girls in Queens, I share with a group of writers and artists that I'm putting together a book club kit for it. This has become a fairly common digital offering, a colorful PDF of brief insights from the author, a recipe or two that relate to the book, discussion questions, and even a playlist of music inspired by the novel that book clubs across the country can utilize. One of the artists I share this with suggests I create a food tour list of the best places to eat in Queens, since that is what attracts so many people to Queens anyway. Yes, yes, I say, that could be a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, the idea gnaws at me over the next few weeks, burns a nervous hole through my organs to the solar plexus of my identity. Yes, for so many people, Queens means food, and not just delicious, attraction-worthy food, but exotic food. Queens is the most diverse county in the entire world. Walking its alternatingly bustling and sprawling streets, one can hear over 160 languages spoken in the borough. Yet something prevents me from making a food tour. Something about it feels urgently wrong to me, like a pot boiling on high, its glass lid fitfully threatening to crack. I don't want to serve my home on a platter, the bones to be picked clean and forgotten about until it's burnt back up later. My novel is titled The Girls and Queens, but I can't offer up my culture to be consumed without context. After all, Food might attract a certain segment of the population to Queens, but the food is certainly not what attracted our immigrant families to settle down here. How can I explain that growing up in Queens we didn't go to dumpling houses in Flushing or on Queens Boulevard, <laughs> that there had to be a special occasion to even agree to spend money at a restaurant, <laughs> that empanadas were purchased under a tin-foiled heat lamp at the corner Colombian bakery, not argued over beneath a cartoon anthropomorphic empanada late-night takeout spot. <laughs> How one of my earliest memories is in fact sitting beneath a stained glass lamp inside an old pizza hut and eating a slice with green bell peppers on it, an exotic American delicacy <laughs> for me. How one of the first times my mother brought me out to eat a meal outside of our house that wasn't a fast food restaurant, she brought me to Georgia Diner for my fifth grade graduation <laughs> and that, to be honest, she's still not entirely comfortable ordering off a menu to this day. As first and second generation immigrants, often our connections to and experiences with restaurants were not from the side of the patrons. Our parents, our uncles, our aunts, so many worked in these restaurants in Queens and in Manhattan or in relation to them. My mother worked close to minimum wage for a uniform store that sold garments and linens to restaurants for waitstaff to wear. Eating out for us meant bringing home greasy Chinese takeout from Hunan Kei a pound of spicy chicken wings from Merit Kebab, or a McDonald's Arch Deluxe to be consumed in front of the television while watching the TGIF lineup. <laughs> How can I explain that in high school after class, $2 could get us four dumplings or an entire kebab meal from nondescript silver carts on the corner of Broadway and Elmhurst? That this wasn't just a frugal score, but necessary. How can I explain that we were more versed in the smorgasbord offerings of the bodega instead of the culinary odysseys of restaurants? The purple wise bag of potato chips with its neon yellow haze, the sprinkled blue bag of pretzel nuggets, and all the different heat varieties of Cheetos. 
how we were taught to cobble together a meal out of a can of Vienna sausages and dusty bags of rice, a trick passed down from the island already colonized by the U.S. That there were Indian delis, Mexican delis, Korean delis, and Jewish delis that were actually a whole different thing. <laughs> the queens of consumption, of Food Network specials, and the New York Times real estate section is not the queens in my novel. Grisma and Kelly, the girls of the girls and queens, sneak Funyuns into Shea Stadium, split a package of devil dogs while cutting school, shoplift Sour Patch Kids, and toss green chiefless platanitos bags at leering men. As so many under-resourced families and neighborhoods are forced to, they made do with what they had. We made do with what we had. Sometimes that meant rice dishes from our homelands. Sometimes that meant 25-cent bags of popcorn. Nowhere in that spectrum is a tour stop I'd want to curate for a quick bite on the way to Arthur Ashe Stadium. The struggles of our families are not for voyeuristic entertainment, and neither is our sacred joy. When we talk about diversity as a need to be exposed to other cultures, we are centering whiteness. In Queens, diversity is not exposure therapy, but participation. We participate in the rich diversity of immigrant cultures in Queens by eating in each other's family homes, by sharing food in the school cafeteria, at cookouts at Flushing Meadow Park, at Rye Playland. To be clear, this was and is a privilege and an intimacy. One cannot buy your way into community by simply eating a torta off a Roosevelt Avenue taco truck. <laughs> I welcome anyone from any type of background to read The Girls in Queens and trust that they will find some resonance for their own life. The book deals with sexual assault and how women sometimes internalize the pain and rage of the experience against themselves and against other women, and how this manifests in specific and nuanced ways in communities of color. It asks readers to reflect on the ways they've perpetuated rape culture and not put a foot down against toxic masculinity. It explores the complexity of female friendship under the weight of the patriarchy, all of its powerful and unspoken intimacy, its unbridled, infectious joy, and yes, even its heartache, bitterness, and competition. But I wrote this book for working class children of immigrants, and they already know the best dumpling spots. While we may have been steeped in, our, steeped in or pulled between the cultures of our families, we ultimately found our home, our roots, baked within the asphalt of New York City. For Brisma and Kelly, for me and the friends I grew up with, Queens is our true patria, our home and our pride. Our reverence for the tahim dusted mango bags under the 7 train is akin to the way my mother's eyes missed over when she talks about canepas, or my father's delight at biting into the flesh of a freshly picked fig. I will never truly know these intimacies the way each of my parents did, but then they would never be able to appreciate the intoxicating rubber scent of a box of blue handballs lining the bodega counter, the thrill of scoring an underage Lucy at a magazine stand, the Pavlovian elation that hearing the Coco Cheripina song of the icy lady elicits as she rings her bell through a concrete park. No simple food tour can conjure all that, but maybe a book can. Okay, up next, um, I am delighted to introduce Joseph O. Legalfi. He's the author of the collections Threshold and Imago, both from Calvin Carey Press and the Chapbooks Postcards from Ghostbird Press, Aviary, Bastiary, and Subways. He co-founded Kundaman 
a national organization serving generations of writers and readers of Asian American literature. He lives with his husband in Jackson Heights, Queens. Fantastic. Wow. Oh my god. Yeah. Take that people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. love the vibe tonight. Oh my god. Um, thank you for Bushra for bringing us all together and thank you to Viva Heights, which is like the most bookish Response to you know some of the bigger subject and themes that um, that Bushra tackled in her book, which is a really amazing heartfelt book. I already gifted it to a BIPOC <laughs> high schooler who actually lives in Beverly, Massachusetts, oh. and I told her to make sure to finish the book. I didn't give her an ending, um, but she would be amazed that it ended, that the book ends in her hometown. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I'm going to read two poems, and I'm going to juggle. So, so yeah, so, um, you know, again, I love uh, the, the religion, uh, and the queerness and, and, and roses, so I'm going to read one in those themes. Um, this one is called uh, The Homosexual Book of Genesis. It is a short book. <laughs> That's it. No, no. <laughs> it is a short book. God, in his righteous glory, conjures up everything. The separation of light and dark. Firmaments, land and sea, vegetation and beast. On the sixth day, God in his image creates Adam and Adam, sons of his patriarchal regime. Then God thrusts, then no begetting, no litanies of descendants, hence fatal rivalry between brothers, golden calf worship and heavy rains are avoided. No exodus, locusts, thorns, crucifixions, and resurrection. God rests absolutely the seventh day eternal. The serpent remains, coiled up a fruitless tree. But as God's will, there calcified in the larynxes of Adam and Adam, desire. Wow. And again, this is all for like the immigrants, <laughs> the immigrants in all of us. Um, so I came to America in 1984 uh, from the Philippines. Uh, we landed in Los Angeles during the Olympics. Um, I thought we were the first immigrants to America. <laughs> And we were welcomed beautifully by, by Los Angeles. Uh, this one is called Hamburger. And sticking to the food theme, uh, it has an epigraph by the chef Dan Barber of, of the Blue Hills uh, you know, farm and restaurant upstate. Uh, 
uh, Evan Graf goes, the great curse of American food culture is that we have no food culture. <laughs> Hamburger. <laughs> In 1984, when I arrived in the East United States, pastel neon in the green pastiche desert of Olympic distant Los Angeles, I wanted my first meal to be a hamburger, drenched in tomato, not banana ketchup, squeezed between white sesame seed buns, not pandesal, Filipino morning roll, eaten sweetly any time of the day. That had to wait. On arrival in a town called Bell, I was served rice under pork chicken adobo and the rest of my first week, a feast as if I've never left. Pancit garnished with shredded veggies for longevity, oxtails, pork hocks, calf's feet, bisque and peanut butter sauce, pig stewed in shrimp paste, bitter melon, chayote, achiote. The women lived practically in the kitchen, how things had not yet changed. My grandmother chopping, stir-frying, frying, boiling, steaming, mashing, melodious sounds that carry the bewildering loneliness of a foreign home momentarily out of doors. Since the table was not big enough, we ate together, scattered throughout the two-bedroom, one-bath house shared by three families. On mats on the floor, we children loved sleeping side by side, hot dogs rotating on a carnival seller's grill. But I was growing impatient. The fast food that would transform me into an American I hadn't ingested a kind of superhero pill. Until my first day of school in my seventh grade cafeteria where I was served a round patty of compressed meat, boiled, <laughs> charred, yawning open face next to curly potatoes, growing a cartoon meteorite orange. <laughs> I could not contain my joy. I tore and poured on packets of ketchup, discarded the wilted iceberg by fabric softener, <laughs> clamped the hamburger between my shaky hands and chomped momentously into my first taste of America. Salty, starchy, chewy beginning, to a lifetime consumption, powdered with sugar, melted as margarine, deep fried blue dye iced over, jelloed, marshmallowed, popcorn, bite sized on the run. <laughs> Thank you, Bostra. Congratulations again. Now, this book is important, so very necessary. So. Um, Sonia Mushki, yeah. uh, as a writer, researcher, and educator, her creative nonfiction and fiction projects have been encouraged by Bona, Tin House, Lambda Literary, Monson Art, Blue Mountain Center, and their work has appeared in Scholar and Feminist Online, 
feminist formations and teachers and writers. Sonia is based in Queens, the borough that raised her. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Bushra, all of the other readers, um, Rika for the playlist, and DJ Aft for the after party. Um, Amber and everybody at Vivala Heights, and all of you for coming out um, for this wonderful celebration of Roses in the Mouth of the Lion. Um, I was telling Bashar earlier, I feel like a self-appointed Mossy to this book, so I'm really <laughs> excited that we're able to do something here in Queens. Um, I'm honored to be a part of this event, and uh, tonight I'm going to read an excerpt of a short story um, called Work is Work is Work. The story is about two women who meet at a bar here on Roosevelt Avenue where Tara is a bartender and Harith is her customer. Um, what we've seen so far in this story is that they are drawn to each other for many reasons, including that they are both grappling with different forms of loss. And I just realized a few minutes ago that the pages I'm reading are literally the only pages that don't take place in Queens in the story. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> so, um, okay, so work is work is work. Um, exactly one month after their first breakfast together, Gurpreet asks Tara for help. The next morning, in crisp kurtas that Gurpreet has already bought for the occasion, they squeeze into a cab with a cardboard box cradled between them. Gurpreet had assumed that her mother would want to spread the ashes, but she had refused. She was deep in her own mourning, not of her husband's death, but of the decades she had lost caring for an alcoholic. She was an old woman now, and she needed to sit with us. Loveline Gurpreet's younger sister had been willing to join her, but she couldn't cancel classes to travel back from Philadelphia. Her chair was rumored to be cutting at least three adjuncts from the fall semester schedule, and she couldn't afford to draw any attention to herself. We can do it in the summer, Loveline had offered, but when the funeral parlor called to say the complimentary storage period was about to expire, and they could coordinate with an authorized vendor for a burial at sea, Gurpreet felt it was time to go ahead. Anyway, they were well past the time that they were supposed to spread the ashes, according to the Gurdwara. Tara has never been to this part of the city before, a line of one-story houses along the bay, punctuated by little fishing boats gently nodding below at the passersby. They walk to the end of the pier, and their brief waves at an older man in a red and black checked shirt. He gestures to the back of his boat. gestures to the back of his motorboat where they have a small deck to themselves. On Tara's right, the Verrazano Bridge is full of standstill traffic and the piercing wails of car horns, but if she shifts her view a few inches, she can look out onto the steel-gray expanse of the Atlantic Ocean. It takes only a few minutes for them to reach their destination. The boat jerks to a stop and the motor quiets down. Verpreet opens the box and pulls the bag inside to dislodge it. She clears her throat. <clears throat> Papa, she says, peering into the ashes. Papa, she tries again, but nothing else comes out. She looks away and closes her eyes. She sees him on the bed, his wet eyes fixated on the corner of the room. She smells him, the sweet, sour breath that circles around her in those last hours. She hears him and the rattle growing louder in his chest. She's falling back into the loop. Hey, hey, let me help you, Tara says, stepping closer to Gurpreet. She takes the box from her hands. You just focus on what you want to say. Gurpreet wipes her face and nods, takes a deep breath. Papa, she says, I wish that life had been softer for you and for us. She pours the gray and black and silver matter into the water. As the ashes spiral downward, she adds, I'm sorry I left. I couldn't watch you go. 
Chara stands behind Gurpreet and watches the ashes float and merge and begin to disappear. She rubs her wrist and then quickly pulls off her bracelet, a thin thread of blue and brown wooden beads. She cups it in her fist and whispers into her hand, Vijay, if I had been there, I could have carried you out on my back. Tara kisses the bracelet and releases it, watches it ride the small waves, floating further away from them until it fades and slips underwater. Gurpreet and Tara lean into each other, receiving the warmth of the afternoon sun beating down. Tara unzips her backpack, takes a sip of water from her thermos, and passes it to Gurpreet, who is still watching the bay below. She nudges Gurpreet, her eyes twinkling. You know, if you needed me to do it, I would carry you out on my back. Gurpreet smiles and feigns a stern poke in Tara's chest. You're a little stick. Look at me, she says, gesturing to her body from the bottom to the top, slowing down over her wide hips and full breasts. You collapse. Don't worry, I'm strong, Tara laughs, and mimics Gurpreet's hand motions, emphasizing her muscular torso. She slides over to Gurpreet and kisses her neck. What about me? Would you carry me out on your back? She wraps her arms around Gurpreet. Gurpreet stares at the bridge ahead of them. The traffic is lightened up and the cars coast by in both directions, crossing paths without interruption. I hope I would, Gurpreet says, and turns to face Tara, placing one hand on her cheek. Of course, I hope I would. After Gurpreet settles her bill, they stroll along the waterfront holding hands when they hear a beep. Gurpreet pulls away from Tara to dig her phone out of her tote bag and notices a series of missed calls, all from her supervisor, Kay. Shit, my phone was on Do Not Disturb. I'll be back, she says. She walks away from Tara, pausing under a nearby tree to make her phone call. When she comes back, her brows are con contracted. We need to get going, Tara, Gurpreet says. I need to get ready for work tomorrow. What, what, what? What happened? Why? Tara points to the pink and orange streaks that are beginning to spill across the sky. I thought we could go home after the sunset. She places one hand on Gurpreet's shoulder. We never get to spend time like this out in the world. Gurpreet sighs and looks at her watch. Okay, ten more minutes, she concedes. But instead of sitting down on a bench with, on a bench with Tara, she stands with her arms crossed. Her chest is heavy with anticipation of an early meeting with Kay. All Kay had revealed was that big changes were coming, but Gurpreet had no idea what that could mean. Why make two stops, Gurpreet? Tara asks as they slide into a cab to return to Queens. Mega said she'll cover me till closing. I can stay at her place and just go home in the morning. Gurpreet shakes her head. Tara, I've been there for three months, but my place still feels like a storage room some other time. Let me help you. I can unpack your boxes. She pauses. Gurpreet, I've never even seen your apartment. Tara reaches across the back seat, but Gurpreet pulls away, refusing her touch. Tara, I'm sorry. I just need to get into the zone for my work week. Gurpreet leans against the window and closes her eyes. You can't understand this kind of pressure. Tara bites her lip and sits back, huddled under silence. She watches the city light up across the river and barely registers the taxi slowing down until Gurpreet plants a quick kiss on the cheek and hands her a small stack of bills from the cab there. Thank you for everything today, really, Gurpreet says, and pops out of the car before Tara has a chance to say a word in response. As they wait for the light to turn green, Tara watches Gurpreet walk into her apartment building, a high-rise tower of steel and glass. A doorman greets her and passes over several packages while she waits for an elevator. He points at a sign that says the pool is closed. Gurpreet never mentioned that she had a pool. Tara had assumed that Gurpreet lived in a nice building, maybe with a carpeted lobby, and probably not above a massage parlor. She was a lawyer after all. But Gurpreet had said public servant, and that had sounded humble to Tara, humble like Tara. I am delighted to introduce Nadia. Woo!
Okay, Nadia Q. Ahmed is a poet, writer, editor, and workshop instructor from New York. She grew up in Inwood Astoria, Inwood Astoria and East Elmhurst. Her work appears in publications such as Queensbound, The Shoreline Review, Poets and Writers Magazine, and Asian American Writers Workshops, The Margins. Nadia has received awards from Aspen Words and FAWC and is a Vona Voices and Quelling Workshop alum. Welcome, Nadia. Oh, I'm just going to take this in for a minute. Um, I'm Nadia, as you just heard. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, thanks, Bushra, for writing the book that brought us here. Um, thanks to Sonia for organizing all this stuff. Uh, stuff, meaning I'm a poet. I'm supposed to be particular, but stuff, I'm just going to say. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, thanks to everyone for coming. Um, I ha since I had like a little bit of a platform, I just wanted to, I was trying to write a poem about this and like it didn't take, uh, but the only thing I have is this PSA, which is, I don't know who needs to hear this, but if you drive on the um, Jackie Robinson Parkway, it is not a racetrack. That's, that's all I'm gonna say. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, Bushra, I, I love your book. I just finished the book this morning. Um, it's been a long time since a book made me cry, I'll say that. I also, I'm a copy editor by, by day, <laughs> um, but uh, I also love the comma in the title. I, I also take this platform to say that. Um, it's over here! Yeah, again. Um, I have three poems. Uh, the first one, so one of my um, favorite scenes in the book is the Ramzan chapter. Um, or Ramadan or Ruza, however you, know, however you uh, whatever your relationship is to that word. Um, and uh, Ramzan this year is coming next week, um, and so I, I have a poem uh, about it that I'll open with. It's called Instructions for the Fast. One, hide your hunger in a smooth bowl. Or A, hide your hunger in a smooth, cold bowl. B, Hide your hunger in a small, smooth bowl. C. Hide your hunger in a smooth, blue bowl. D. Hide your desire in a smooth, blue bowl. E. Place your desire in a smooth, blue bowl. 2. Place your hands around the bowl. Or A. Cup your hands around the smooth blueness. B. Cup your hands around your hunger, smoothed. 3. Place yourself into your hunger. Or A, place yourself into your desire. Four, take your desire around and glaze it smooth onto the bowl. Five, watch. At the lip of the world, a fire round sinks into a blue dome. Or A, what shape does your hunger take from you? B, how will you hold it? Six, bring the smooth blue to your lips. Or A, let the desire be something you know. B. Taste your knowing hunger. 7. Know that at this touch, one of you must consume the other. Um, so this next poem is uh, based on a prompt that I got from a writer friend recently to, to write about a moment of uncomplicated joy. Um, if the situation that prompted the situation that 
I wrote about was a little complicated, but <laughs> I tried to like figure it out. Um, maybe for some more context, I so I was trying to like convey feelings to a crush and also didn't know at the time, like didn't confirm whether or not the feelings would be mutual, and then you know like flustered and then tried to use the poem to like regain uh, my, my footing in myself is what I'll say. <laughs> you know, when you like, when you like almost trip, but just stumble, but don't fall on the ground and then you're like, oh, okay, we're gonna keep walking. Okay. Um, uncomplicated joy. It was hard, I'll admit, to lean inward toward the asking, the curiosity, but it makes the time move again like water, so I don't have to wait through. I taste it like a berry fresh picked, a seashell fresh washed in the salty current. This curiosity, to release my jaw, to say to you, unprompted, hi, I'm back, let us hang. And lettuce, I spelled L-E-T-T-U-C-E, let us hang. <laughs> Thank you. I know you're not laughing with me, but thank you. Um, this curiosity, to release my jaw, to say to you unprompted, Hi, I'm back. Let us hang. To revel in the leafy joke, even though you don't even notice it. There it is. For a moment, I've separated my want from want. My heart leaps, heart bound. Um, this poem is for anybody who is um, departing something right now or in a transition. I hope you arrive somewhere new. Apartment. This new place. You wonder in the new silence, the southern sunlight, whether your warm, just greased cast iron will attract the scurrying, conniving roaches that have lorded over this city probably since before you were born. But this isn't a poem about these vermin, aside from maybe the molting you're about to do too. This is a poem about a birth, an incubation. Can you even birth yourself? The question sprawls onto the bare walls. Can you even shelter new rituals here? A bronze roach, slick like oil, appears by the sink like an insult. Antennae quivering like your calibrating soul seeking a foothold stunned by this bright silence. But it will not govern here. It's goal too lofty, you decide, with even this small power of your one small life. You step with your sandal, squash it, say a prayer for the departed, unpack another box. Take stock. To be a part in this new silence is something you have always wanted. A part. A part. A part meant. A Apartment. To part from the familiar means a different thing from what everyone thinks, you remind yourself. You stare out this new pair of windows at the scraggly, ancient, witchy sycamores. They have scabs, like you. They are rooted, like you. This place has made them, made them tall. The sunlight comes through cold but clear. It doesn't reach the kitchen, but you look over at the stove. The cast iron sits solid, gleaming. This is a formality, but we must read the bio. Um, 
because the other way you can read the bio is by buying the book and getting and reading the jacket, the back of the jacket. But you have to buy the book. But I'm going to read it as a formality. But I trust that you will also buy the book. Okay. You could also buy it with a friend if you don't have enough, or you could rest, request it at your local library. Of course. Okay. Lots of options, guys. Like, I, there should be no excuse. Bushra Rahman. Um, Bushra Rahman's, yes, audiobook too. Bushra Rahman's dark comedy, Corona, was chosen by the New York Public Library as one of its favorite books about New York City. She is co-editor of Colonize This, Young Women of Color on Today's Feminism, and author of the collection of poetry, Mariana's Beauty Salon, described by Joseph Olagaspi as a love poem for Muslim girls, queens, and immigrants making sense of their foreign home and surviving. Her new novel, yes, Roses in the Mouth of a Lion, is a modern classic about what it means to be Muslim and queer in a Pakistani-American community. Bushra. Thank you, Nadia. That was amazing. Thank you, all the writers. I mean, wow. This is why we do this. Um, thank you so much, everyone. I'm just going to get into it. I'm going to borrow Sonia's glasses. Um, but, yeah, what can I say? Oh, I mean, I, I'm going to read the Ramzan piece for you. I was wondering what to read. So in a few days, it's going to be Ramzan. And if you're Muslim, you know that, that you know, you're not going to eat or drink um, from sunrise to sunset. But what we do is then we wake up right before sunrise and we just eat like crazy amounts of fried food. So that's all you need to know. Um, and it's really beautiful to do this reading because, you know, all week with the content of this book, I mean, my, my life has always been very secret. I grew up in a very religious Muslim family. My life has always been very secret, but then social media happened and it's hard to keep things secret. and. So I've just been getting all these texts all week that you can't be Muslim and you can't be gay and you can't be both from my family. So it's just so amazing to be here at a gay bar in Queens and celebrate with all of you here. And I'm, so I'm going to read it from on. It's when Razia is hanging out. She's in high school and she's hanging out with some of her friends and she's just discovering her queerness. <clears throat> Eliza, the Slima, and I were like wet noodles laid out on the bed. So hungry we could barely move our limbs. I was so thirsty I was trying to drink my own spit. It was late afternoon, only the first week of Ramzan, and the clarity hadn't set in. Unlike our parents who went about the day doing everything they needed to do with cheerfulness, we were not yet buffered from hunger and thirst by the joys of Ramzan. We were woken up at dawn as if part of some secret society. Like ghosts haunting the kitchen, our mothers would already be up making bratas, smoke hanging over their heads in question mark clouds, the sound of the stove fan disturbing the stillness of the pre-dawn hours. We'd come down groggy and our mothers would say, hurry up, hurry up and eat, Sandy is almost over. With bleary eyes, we'd look out of the windows, but it would still be dark, with no hint of light creeping over the horizon. I was at the Slima's house because we were going to be having an ifari party. My mother had sent me over to help prepare. But their kitchen was small and four people were too many. The Slima's mother shooed us out, sending us upstairs to study. I had a giant book of integrated algebra in front of me, but my brain just wouldn't work. The numbers danced in front of me. My head hurt when I thought of all the work I had to do. I wasn't doing well at Stuyvesant. It was a secret I'd been keeping to myself. I just wanted to sleep, to close my eyes, 
I wouldn't mind fasting if all I had to do was rest and read namaz and Quran. Maybe if we were back in Pakistan, it would be like this. But the pace of the city and the heartlessness of my teachers at Stuyvesant didn't let up. I don't know if there's any other sty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't care if it was Ramzan. I still had to do homework and take tests and quizzes and be present and awake in class. I learned early getting sympathy was impossible. It was generally thought by our teachers that being Muslim was our fault, and our odd, torturous ways were not their problem. The Slima's voice came to me from far away. What if I brush my teeth and I swallow a little bit of water? Would that break my muslim? No one answered, but she continued. What if I'm showering and I lean my head back and I accidentally swallow a little bit of water? Would that break my rosa? Her sister's Eliza's head was under a pillow. She wasn't happy her college spring break coincided with Ramzan. She'd been looking forward to some home cooking. She just tried to read but then decided her head was more comfortable under a pillow. How many hours until Rosa ends? I looked over at the silent clock radio. During Ramzan, we didn't listen to music or watch TV. Without those worldly distractions, we were stripped down to our essence. That was the point of Ramzan. Two hours, I replied, and Eliza groaned. You know what I really miss, the Slima continued, as if Eliza hadn't said a word. The way when water comes out of the tap, and then it fizzes. That's what doesn't clean the Then you wait for the clouds to pass, and then you drink it. No one said anything for a while. How long now until Rosa ends, Eliza asked? One hour and 57 minutes. She pulled the pillow off her head and looked out the window, glaring at the sun, trying to make it move faster. How can you even study? I have to. I, I can't keep up at Stuyvesant. The Slima tried to assure me. It's hard to focus on anything when you have Rosa. When we first come upstairs, the Slima had tried to type a paper, but after typing T-H-E, she said, my fingers are tired, and flopped back on the bed. <laughs> it's not Rosa. I'm just not smart anymore. They both stared at me. What are you talking about? I could sense the annoyance in Eliza's voice. I should have known better than to irritate her so close to Fadi time, but I couldn't help myself. The teachers, they just make me feel so stupid. They're not good teachers in Corona. They're not nice. I don't know what nice teachers you had in Corona, but proceed. Like in math, anytime I get anything wrong, the teacher screams at me, how did you get into Stuyvesant? I flushed, remembering how embarrassing it was. He always seemed to pick on me, the only Muslim in the class. Razia, I'm going to say this once, and I cannot believe I'm even going to waste these calories on you, but you're either smart or you're not. If you pass the test to get in, that means you belong in Stuyvesant. Plus, you wouldn't last a day in John Bound. You'd get eaten alive. <laughs> Eliza was right. I mean, this is back in the 80s, I don't know how this now. In John Bound, grades didn't matter as much as survival. Boys came on strong, girls fought with fists and nails, and exasperated teachers were as likely to throw a punch as the students. You're right, Eliza. I tried to sit up, but as soon as I moved, my bra strap cut into my skin, tightening around my shoulders. I pulled at it to try to stretch it out. What are you doing now, Eliza snapped. You're making me crazy. Sorry, my bra... You gotta stop buying those cheap Junction Boulevard bras. <laughs> How did she know? <laughs> my mother, angry at my jiggling around the house, had taken me to Junction Boulevard. My body was an embarrassment to her and myself. 
Just when I thought my breasts were done growing, they'd grow even more. There wasn't any fitting rooms in the stores. The management thought we were all thieves. So there in the stacks of cheap clothing, my mother made me strap bras over my kameez, while a group of little girls stared at me, giggling. If you want to buy a real bra, get one from here. Eliza reached into her desk drawer. Oh, a Hershey Kiss. She pulled out the silver wrapper and popped it into her mouth. Eliza, you just broke your rosa. I said, horrified. It's okay, nobody knows. Um, Allah knows. <laughs> Eliza rolled her eyes. Oh my God, Razia, your mother's not watching. You don't have to act that way. But I wasn't acting. Um, Eliza tossed the Victoria's Secret catalog and it hit me in the face. That was Eliza. One moment she'd be telling me to be strong and believe in myself, and the next she'd be throwing an underwear catalog in my face. I opened it, my breath stopped. The pages were filled with beautiful women. They were nothing but bras and skimpy panties. They held their bodies like Amazons, stretched between tall grasses and jungle foliage. They stood under waterfalls, but were not drenched. They stood in empty rooms with elegant apartments. They posed under chandeliers and were not embarrassed. Instead of stooping and hiding their breasts the way I did, they pushed out their chest and stretched their arms out over their heads. They looked straight out into the pages, daring us to say to them, Hey, you're just wearing underwear. <laughs> I felt a warm electricity start in my stomach and move through my body. The image of Angela floated in my mind. That's her high school crush. I'd never seen her in anything except concert t-shirts and ripped jeans, but I saw her now with her thick eyeliner and wild hair, wearing black angel wings and nothing but her underwear. Stop drooling, what's wrong with you? Eliza said. I became defensive. You're the one who gave it to me. Yeah, but I meant to you to look at the underwear, not the women. What are you, a lesbian? The word hung in the air between us like a neon sign. Eliza, the Slima, their mother called from downstairs. Speak of the devil, I said, but my joke fell flat, as we hadn't been speaking about their mother at all. <laughs> Still, I thanked their mother <laughs> for saving me <laughs> from Eliza's and the Slima's questioning eyes. Thank you. Writer, always editing. So I want to edit my statement about it being a Queens Renaissance because Queens has always has art, Queens has always had music, Queens has always had incredible artists living here. It's just that the world is, you know, starting to learn about it. But I still don't want the whole world to be. Um, all right, I think that is it. Again, thank you, uh, Viva La Heights. Um, please be generous with them the way they've been to us. Tag them on social media. Thank you, Sonia, so much for helping to organize this um, with Asian American Asian Research Institute. <laughs> thank you, Q and Willow. Please support their bookstore. And you know, we're gonna have a party. Oh, thank you, DJ Reka, who is going to be DJing. Um, stick around, get drinks. I believe you can get food and bring it back in here if you want. Um, so yeah, hang out. We're gonna have a party. Yay.